Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you ever want to be arrest for the murder of William Miller, who was the gas station attendant? You're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 3. And as usual, I am joined in the studio by Mike Bussing. Hello. And Zach Weaver. Ni hao. Okay, and that's Zach's uh, weekly weird introduction of himself. <laughs> uh, so this week we talked about some extended information on victimology about Bill Little. And we also went into a crime scene analysis and a medical evidence analysis, which led into me developing a preliminary profile. And uh, this episode, I know from the post that we put up uh, asking for Friday follow-up questions, uh, this episode drummed up a lot of questions. So we'll go ahead and get started with those. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. Okay, our first question comes from Kelly. Is there any way to tell if the killer is left or right-handed? Just thinking about the angles of the shots, and it seems awkward. No, there's really not. There's too many unknown variables, and Zach can tell you as a competitive shooter, I, I think pretty much whether you're right or left-handed, your angle is going to be the same. Whether you're shooting from here or here, which hand, you're kind of trying to center yourself. Yeah, with the positioning of the store layout and where the suspect was and where Bill was, there's no way to tell. I mean, like you said, the angle is going to be the same. Right. It's, and, you know, if it was a knife or something like that, you could tell better. But just from the angle of a bullet, you're not going to be able to tell. Right. A, ni- a knife is easier because you have usually a cast-off pattern and you have the angle of entry and everything. In this case... I mean, because we're talking about someone that's two to three feet away from Bill at a minimum, so they could have been straight in front of him, and Bill just turned his body, yeah, causing that angle. There, so there's just too many unknown variables to make any determination if we're talking right or left-handed. All right, this next one comes from Kyle. I have a question about the amount of money. We keep saying ninety-two dollars is missing. Does that include the fifty dollars that you referenced that they began with, meaning they were only missing forty-two dollars in profit? Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, what she accounted for is how much money should be in the drawer, which there should have been $92. And if one part in her trial testimony, she says 92 cents. Another part, she says 55 cents. Uh, but that would be the $50 he started with and any profit that was left over minus the money he had put into the safe. So that was the total amount of cash, the $92.55 or 92 cents of money that was supposed to be in the drawer. And of course, the drawer was completely empty. All right. And Kathy wants to know, were there any coins found at the scene? She says, I don't remember any mentioned. There were, um, I'm trying to remember which report. In one of the police reports that I was reading, 
it's noted that were, there were a couple of pennies found in the parking lot. Like, like just like two or three pennies, like one near the door. I think there was one by the gas pump and one. So, so those could have been randoms too. Right. So we don't know if those came out of the register till as he was leaving or if those were just pennies that were on the ground. It seems like such a strange thing to not find change though. You mean like they, they had mm-hmm. to take time to actually get the change out. Those, the change in those drawers, as you know, is loose. Right. So you had to take the time to actually scoop the change out, put it in a pocket. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There was some time there because if you're just running down the road, they're everywhere. Right. You're going to find a trail right to the guy. Well, you know, this is because we were, Mike and I were talking before you got here about the register being missing and what that means. And I think this is a, a good spot to kind of bring you into the discussion and, and for all the listeners. What are your thoughts on the drawer? So we have, I'll tell you my theory. I think the drawer was empty when he left. Okay. And I say that because Martinez didn't notice him holding a cash register drawer. Yeah. He said he thought his hands were in his pockets. The kids across the street, the Luna boys, said it looked like he was carrying a drawer or he was carrying something under his coat. And to me, you know, if, if you're holding the drawer the way it's supposed to be to hold the money yeah. upright, you can't put that under your coat. Under your coat. It's also dumb. You yeah. know, why would you not just grab the cash out of it? And and then put the cash in your pocket and leave the till. And that's why I think, and, and you're going to hear a little bit of discussion between me and Jim Clementi on Sunday about this, uh, so I don't want to go too far into that, but I think that very likely the drawer was empty. I don't think he walked out carrying it upright, partially from what you just said, too. If there was change, there would have been change everywhere yeah. if he's going down the road. Like, what do you what do you think about the drawer? Like I said, I mean, I think that you had to take everything out of it in the store. Right. Because if you're taking it with you, there's no way to keep that change in there. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're carrying it like a pizza box, essentially, to keep the change in it. Right. That's very noticeable by anybody. Right. Anybody's going to notice you carrying a, a big object in front of you. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to tilt it. Then you're losing all the change. So you had to have emptied it before you left the store. Right. And potentially the dollar bills, too. Now, they probably had those well, little I, yeah, I would, spring-loaded things that yeah. pushed down on the bills. What do you think, Mike? Um, I think that based on the witness statements, it's still very unclear. And I think that there's still a chance that the killer was carrying the till under his coat. And the witnesses' statements to me aren't clear enough to indicate either way. So I think there's still a very good chance that he was carrying it upright under his coat. Upright meaning like the way it fits. Pizza box, yeah. Like a pizza box under his coat. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, see, I don't don't, don't think that's... I I just, I I don't feel like you can fit it under a coat like that. Uh, You know, and I'm thinking the way he was described, the type of, of coat that Gutierrez, that everybody describes him wearing. Well, I mean, the Luna boys, so they thought maybe it was a trench coat, but they're, you know, over 200 feet away across the street. Yeah. You know, those types of jackets are pretty form-fitting. They're not like a big bulky. Yeah, and you got to assume, I don't know the register that they had, but the register that I have, and it's a newer one, which means it's smaller. Mm-hmm. I mean, that tray is probably at least a foot or 18 inches wide mm-hmm. by the same depth. So yeah. it's not something you can easily it, just... It's pretty big. We put up on our website one of the crime scenes, the only crime scene photo we have of the red and you see it open. And it's, okay. I would guess it's probably it's probably maybe 12 wide by 16 inches okay. deep. And, and so that's what it comes... And this is very, very relevant when we're talking about developing a profile because I think it means very different things. If he's running out with the... Or walking out, as it were, uh, with... The, the the drawer, the till from inside upright because it's still got all the money in it. To me, that indicates something very different behaviorally than if someone already emptied it yeah, and then grabs it and takes it with them. You know, in and, and one area, it, it's almost completely opposite. One shows no criminal sophistication. It's it's idiotic. It's stupid. People don't do that. You don't take the, the till with you. And especially because you've got five minutes that pass from the time the drawer was open the last time yeah. until you leave, no evidence of a struggle. So we can presume that he had what was in the drawer already five minutes before he shot Bill and left the scene. So to take that till out with money still in it, holding it upright, is a bonehead move. Mm-hmm. However, if he had, you know, say, you know, in the scenario that we had talked about last week, where, you know, the no sale, Bill opens it up, gives him the cash. And, and then he hits it again. He's like, no, I know there's no money in there. Maybe the based on where the guy was standing, you know, the guy reaches over and the unsub and just grabs his, I know there's more money in there, and he picks it up. And so now you have this empty till sitting there. He's already got the cash. 
And then when he decides to leave, he says, well, shit, I grabbed that. My fingerprints are, you know, it's, two, it's 1991, so nobody's thinking DNA and things like that. Yeah. But he, he grabs the till and leaves because his fingerprints are on it. Mm-hmm. To me, that is, that's an indicator of the opposite end of the spectrum. That is very criminally sophisticated based on 1991 forensics or known forensics to say, I better get this out of here because I touched it. The other thing, too, is is he may never even put it down. If right. he grabs it at that moment, He's he may be still it. holding it. And that's where your, your fine motor skills come in and your gross motor skills. In a moment like that, a, a really traumatic moment, you pretty much lose all your fine motor skills. Mm-hmm. So you're not thinking to drop that. You just have it clinched. Right. You're going to open fire and leave. Right. Good and you're point. not you're not thinking about getting rid of that, dropping it. It might not even be about the fingerprints. It might right. just be that, that he was holding it. There's training videos that shows this, and and I'm sure I could find one, but there's training videos that show this where they'll have a, a trainee holding a pop can and then they'll have to draw a firearm and shoot. And nine times out of ten, they won't drop the pop can. Mm-hmm. Even though they should, it's just right. you lose that that thought process. Right. And then too, we gotta de- determine based on the timeline, was it a traumatic spur of the moment thing? Yeah. I don't I don't think it was. I don't think I think after five minutes of being there when he shoots him. I feel like that was without the signs of struggle, and that's critical to this. There's no signs of any struggle and a distance between him and Bill that it was a calculated decision to, all right, screw you, whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the trigger and yeah. shoot you. So there's a lot going on there. And then also I think it's relevant that the, the till was not found anywhere in the three-block canvas too. You know, that's so, – so looking at both scenarios, if, if say it's – that was his means of getting the money out – he grabs the till. He's got the whole thing, which, again, is a weird bonehead thing to do, and he carries it. But then you think as soon as you're out of sight, your reaction, if your goal was the money in the till, you quick grab the bills, drop that thing, and get the hell out of there. Yeah. So that, to me, it's, an, it's another level of evidence of a criminal sophistication on the part of, of the offender. The till is, the till is perplexing. Um, I haven't seen, I know some people asked, but in... Trying to look at some of these other home or uh, other gas station robberies, you know, I've started to look through some newspaper articles and stuff. There's nothing in there about the till being missing. That doesn't mean that there wasn't or that I haven't found them all yet. But it just it, it seems like a very odd thing to do. You take the big bill, you take the cash, and you get out of there. Yeah. So I, that that's still a mystery. And you're and as I said, Sunday you're going to hear some discussion between me and Jim about it. And uh, well, I'm, I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about, but it's, it's just interesting, something to think about before you hear that episode coming on Sunday is what do you think about, I'm speaking to the listeners now, what do you guys think about that till being taken? All right, this one's from Wendell. Can we get a map up of possible escape routes? I agree with Bob that it's significant that the killer left on foot. It does seem to indicate that they did not enter that space planning to commit a crime. Did the police attempt to track an escape route and look for trace evidence? They did. They, well, that was that kind of three block canvas they did. And they did it twice, I believe. But to be clear, I don't I don't think that the fact that the the killer being on foot and it's kind of back to the cash register thing too. I don't think that the killer being on foot is an indicator they didn't intend to commit a crime. I think it cuts exactly the other way. Meaning, and Mike and I were where we walked it, because I always like to go to a crime scene and try to put yourself in the perspective of the unsub or the the offender. Yeah, the when we went to the crime scene, the alley to the north, right. Of the gas station led straight to a, a neighborhood, and it looked like a completely different world. I mean, right. and, it, and it was up okay. maybe a hundred yards or so, and it was the perfect escape route for someone to sort of get away without being noticed, and to have parked a, maybe a, a getaway vehicle in that neighborhood. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the witnesses said that they saw him exit the gas station going north. Right? Yeah. Well, Luna and uh, Martinez, the Luna boys and Martinez, said they saw him go around the station to the east and then north towards that alley. And yeah, so so to me, the fact that they came there, unless it's just like, if you're looking like a, a kid from the neighborhood, all right, then it makes sense they're on foot. Maybe they, they didn't know what was going to go down. But I think, to me, if if I was going to plan that robbery, it it is really perfect. There's a street, and the the name is escaping me of the street just to the east. Uh, it runs parallel to Linden to the east of the gas station, but it is it's a residential neighborhood. And it's weird because you're in this place where the gas station is at the northwest corner. There's a big factory there. The southeast corner there's the big credit union, and then of course in the northeast corner is the gas station. It's kind of a commercial area. It's busy. You go up one block, 
and and head north, and it's just a quiet residential neighborhood, and the alley connects the two. So it, it would it would be again very criminally sophisticated, I think, if they knew they were going to go in and do something like this, that they would park a vehicle over on that other residential street, walk up to the gas station. That's far enough away. They have a small caliber weapon. You can almost be assured nobody in that neighborhood is going to hear any shots. So they won't know something's happening. And the person then, once they killed Bill, hit the alley, just walk 100 yards down that alley. They pop out into that neighborhood where no one knows anything's happening. Yeah. And they get in their car and they drive away. Well, in my opinion, I think we're giving the killer way too much credit as far as his intellect goes. (laughs) Well, that's the question, though, right? Is... How much credit should we give him? That's what we're trying to do is analyze the behavior. And we're looking at the actions that were taken and then de- trying to determine, is this something that happened by happenstance? Yeah, it just... Was this be- pre-planned? Yeah. And so I, I'm not saying that this that this unsub did plan this thing out and put their car there and that's how they did it. I'm just saying that that is a possibility of what happened based on the direction he was going and the fact that nobody saw him leaving once he hit that alley. It's a possibility. And if that's what happened, then what does that mean? How does that reflect back onto her offender, which is what kind of profiling is? Would an 18-year-old kid shoot Bill and then walk casually out of the store, keep the till, walk down the alley, go to the other neighborhood, get into his awaiting car, and then leave without leaving anything behind? Typically, I would say no. But if those things mean something different, if the taking of the register, the taking of the till was just a stupid move. Right. An impulsive move, like, oh, I'm just taking the cash and going. Right. And, and now he can't run because he's got money in the till. Right. Exactly. So he's walking out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what evidence do we have that he didn't run? Only Martinez and Luna's statement. Okay. They both said he's walked okay. around. But yeah, in those cases, so if you do have somebody that took it because it was a bonehead move, the only reason he's not running is because he's holding a till full of money. Well, now you're looking at an offender that's likely younger, more impulsive. But to me, that doesn't fit with the other circumstances of the crime scene. The the 15-minute wait, the the five minutes prior to or, or after the money's out still staying in the store. But then, like, Mike had a good point. That could have just been them working up the nerve yeah. to kill him. So I think, I, think, I think the more important part, obviously, anything with my profile is absolutely up for debate. I'm not an expert at all. Jim is the expert. And we'll see what he has to say, but I think he would he would say the same thing that it's still kind of there there are, there are probabilities and possibilities that we're dealing with here. Uh, but I think that in all of these scenarios we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about someone with a known personal relationship to Bill. That that's the part of my profile that I'm the most comfortable with is that this was not a robbery gone bad. I do not believe that was the case. I think the person went in there specifically to confront Bill. I think that Bill was killed for a reason other than the robbery. Yeah, I have to agree. And and I think that without putting anything on anybody, I, I think that drugs were probably definitely involved. I know they talked about him possibly having a gambling problem, mm-hmm. but I don't see this being a gambling. I, I've hung around pool halls. I've been around some serious gamblers. Right. They want their money. They're mm-hmm. going to break your hand. They're not going to... Right. Kill you. You know, where I think if it's drug related, your the product is gone too. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a more serious issue. But like a gambling debt, I just don't see it being a gambling debt. Well, and there's also the possibility that all three of his elements of, of risk factors are related. Yeah. You know, so what if the people that he has the gambling debt to are the same people that he's, and I don't know if he was dealing drugs, doing drugs, whatever he was doing, but whatever his drug dealings were with the same people that he had the gambling issue with who were the same people that we're breaking into that store, now you're talking about a different set of circumstances. And that's, I wonder if there's not, part of what I'm going to do moving forward too is to see like, is there, is there a group that fits that bill? Okay. You know what I mean? Is there, is there a group out there that, where it's not just you owe me 40 bucks and it's not just, but you have, you know, I, I said in the episode that I think this could be like a member of a group because to me it's like this, this is someone that it feels like that, that they, they've been disrespected. Okay. Is how it feels to me that Bill has somehow disrespected either this person or a group they belong to. And, and that's what ultimately led to his murder. And that's why I said it feels like they're trying to send a message or something. Mm-hmm. Cause, it, Cause I just, I can't, 
And that doesn't mean that's what happened. That's a possibility. Uh, maybe not even a probability, but it, it just, there was a reason why he was shot. I think the, the crime scene profiles to an older offender and someone more mature and with some, some criminal sophistication. And it, it just, to me, it seems like this was someone being sent a message. And, and what I want to know is there a group that encompasses all of his risk factors all into one that could culminate in him being murdered? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, the other thing that, that crosses my mind, and not to put this on Danny Hartley, but you almost wonder, too, if, if Danny Hartley is a was a person they were going for being that, you know, you could come in and not that Danny Hartley left knowingly. Maybe mm-hmm. Bill was kind of holding that, trying to not tell, you know, I want you to stay, but I'm not going to tell you why I need you to stay. You know, I want you to stay. You oh, meaning to stay. the offender was looking for, for Danny. Yeah. Maybe he had came in earlier looking for Danny. Mm-hmm. They tell him to have Danny stay. Bill doesn't want to say, Hey, there's a guy looking for you. You need to stay. But he's like, Hey, why don't you stay with me? Right. And then that, that wait, that time period that's waiting, maybe he's told Bill, you need to get Danny here. Right. Which is very hard in 91 because you don't have cell phones. Yeah. So then you're, you're, that's what that, that wait could possibly be is like, I'll try to call him. I'll wait. Okay. I'm going to wait here. Right. It could be. It I mean, could... that's just a theory. I don't know. Yeah. Was there a, a tel- there was a telephone in the gas station, right? Do we right. have a call log? Uh, we don't have a call log that I'm aware of, uh, but there definitely was one because he called Chuck, who we heard from a couple weeks ago yeah. uh, from one station right. to the other. But, you know, and, and that's, I think that's a possibility, but then you have to wonder, well, then why, if you're waiting, if he says he's coming back, why do you decide, you know what, never yeah, mind. Why would you kill him? Yeah. Never mind, I'll just shoot you. It's an obscure theory. It's just something that came to me while we yeah. were sitting here. There's a lot of, and, and for those of you new listeners at this stage of the investigation, don't, please do not take any of our, which I wouldn't even call them theories at this point, the hypothesis that we put forward as like fact, like this is what happened. I mean, this, this is a real-time investigation. This is how we do it. We we bring to you through the episodes and through these follow-up episodes to bring you into the process of us working through these things. So we're we're in the phase now of analyzing evidence and trying to formulate different hypotheses as to what that evidence may mean. But we, we, we're still, no, nothing now is determined one way or the other, I don't think, anything. No. You come up with one theory and you can justify the exact opposite right after that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's tricky. It's a lot of thinking out loud. All right. Summer has two questions. The second officer said that there were people at the gas pumps doing what people at gas stations do. I don't remember Pilo mentioning anyone other than Martinez. Were there other people at the pumps? And if so, what did they see? Yeah. So, and that's part of the reason it seemed very clear in Paul Williams recorded a statement we heard this week that he was their second. But it's not so clear in the reports and other statements that he's given. It were sometimes he's there first, sometimes Pilo's there first. But another indicator to me that that Williams got their second is remember Pilo gets there, or excuse me, that Williams got their second, if I didn't say that the first time. Uh, but Pilo gets there, parks his car, he's walking up through the the parking lot of the credit union. He sees Martinez putting air in his tires. There's no one else there. And then he sees him get up, start to walk towards the station, walk back. He's calling the plate. And then as he's crossing the street, a truck pulls in. Remember, back from episode one, a truck pulled in to get gas. And Pilo goes over to him and tells him, hey, you got to get out of here. The guy's kind of arguing with him, wanting to know why. He tells him to go park across the street. So I, I think that that is what Paul Williams was seeing. Yeah. So that means by the time he got there, Pilo's already crossing the street. Martinez had already done his back and forth shuffle thing, which means 
The unsub has already left the building. They're gone when Williams arrives and sees people doing what people do at a gas station, which is somebody pulling up to the pump and uh, Martinez putting air in his tires. Her next question is, do you think all the cigarettes being accounted for indicates this not actually being a robbery? I remember from George Powell's case that the actual robber stole cartons of cigarettes in addition to the cash. Is stealing cigarettes a common thing in gas station robberies? It is a common thing, but I don't think it necessarily, on its face and alone, I don't think that means that this was not a robbery. I mean, maybe the person didn't smoke. Maybe they just didn't have room. There's a whole lot of reasons why maybe they didn't take the cigarettes. But I think it adds to the evidence as a whole. They did smoke. What's that? He did smoke. Well, yeah, the guy that, yeah, you're exactly right. The guy that Gutierrez saw was smoking a cigarette when he was there. So, but, but there, you can come up with a lot of reasons why they didn't take the cigarettes. But it just, it also, when you take the evidence as a whole and add that to it, that and the $20 bill that was still in Bill's pocket, all of that indicates that this was not a robbery. Andrea says, from the time of the $3 no sale to eight twelve, when Gutierrez got to his house, is that a reasonable amount of time to get from inside the gas station to his car and inside his house? Oh, yeah, I think so. Because it's, I mean, how long does it take to walk out and get in your car and drive away? A minute, maybe? Yeah, it doesn't take long. And, and he just lived just a few blocks away. He didn't live far away from there. I don't remember the exact address. I think it's, it's redacted from the report, but based on context, as he's explaining to the officers where he lives, they're like, well, it's just right around the corner. So yeah, I mean, when you're talking, what do, what do we have? Six minutes. I think it's 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 perfectly reasonable for him to take a minute to get out to his car, start the car, and drive and make, you know, what sounds like a two or three minute drive home and get out and walk into his house in those six minutes. All right, and Claire says, is it possible that whoever did this was trying to get Bill to open up the floor safe, and that could account for the gaps in the timeline? Anything's possible, but I think most people know, especially anybody that, you know, robs gas stations for a living knows that the, the the clerk doesn't have access to that safe. That's the whole point of the safe. And I think that could be determined pretty quickly. We did find out from Donna Bernard's testimony, the manager, that the clerks did have. So we heard, I don't remember if we included that part in the episode from Chuck, where he said that there was another safe where he could get change from. I don't the, remember that being in the episode. Yeah. So I think that's something we didn't, it didn't fit into that episode, but Anyway, so Chuck said at the Clark station he worked at, there was a second safe back in the back room that just had rolled coins Mm -hmm. if they needed change for their drawer, but they didn't have access to the floor safe. Donna Bernard said that in this one, there was a key in the register that was for an upper portion of the floor safe that you could open up for change, that they had rolled coins and things like that that were in there. There was no indication that that was actually opened. I mean, when we get to the trial and stuff, this investigation, from what I've seen so far, is pretty pathetic. There's a lot of questions, good questions, that should have answers. That in most cases we work, we do have the answers that we don't. You know, nobody, nobody's documenting, did anybody get in the floor safe to get the change? The police didn't ask, at least from what I've seen so far, Donna Bernard, was the floor safe accessed at all for the change or anything? At least not, again, not that I can recall. Uh, and then at trial, none of the attorneys are asking her. I mean, I, I'm reading, you know, even the, the autopsy, it's the same thing. You know, Jamie had uh, a public defender, which is not to disparage public offenders at all, uh, because they are some of the, the most selfless, great attorneys that are out there. It's a hard job, uh, but it doesn't appear that person put a lot of energy into the prep work on this case that could be because of their, their workload. But I'm like reading the 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 autopsy is short and sweet. It's it's a page of findings in a diagram in a coroner's report. That's it. And so I I go to the the trial testimony to see. Okay, well let's let's get the details. That's when the details come out, right? Because they ask questions. I want to know about these bruises. They say they're they're brown and yellow or whatever, and nobody even asks. Yeah. Nobody on either side asks them what do these bruises indicate? Could there have been a struggle? You know, so like neither prosecution or defense is trying to like draw out the right information. Michelle says, I thought it's more likely that the unsub didn't shoot Martinez because Officer Pilo was there, not because of a fear factor as Bob had suggested. What are your thoughts? I think that's probably true. Yeah, I would agree. I I mean, I, I think that in my mind, I have this idea of this enforcer type person, but that could also be wrong. And I, I guess it's possible this because Pila was there, but then again, I don't necessarily think that that person knew Pila was there. Right. Like in my view, they never made contact. 
No. And you would think that if he, just out of human instinct, you would think if, if he committed a crime, saw an officer, he's going to try to get out of there quicker. Right. And, and if he, you know, all these witnesses say he was walking, he wasn't trying to get out of there. You know, it might right. have been a brisk walk, but if you commit a crime, you just murdered somebody, you see an officer. You're running. You're running. Or, well, unless you're more mature and criminally sophisticated, then you don't want to look suspicious, so you walk. But all that being said, remember, Pilo, we're talking about a four-second walk to turn around that corner. Pilo is across the street in a dark parking lot, approaching on foot. And in that walk, Martinez says that the person walking out looked and saw him. And he said, he, he, I think he said he looked surprised to see me and turned the corner. Well, so you have that flash of I'm out the door, I'm turning the corner, there's a person 30 feet away right there, and you look, your attention goes right there. I find it highly doubtful that he was scanning the perimeter and seeing the cop approaching from the dark on foot from across the street in that moment, because yeah. he's only got a, a moment, a second, a couple seconds to see Martinez and go. So, uh, But it, it very well could have nothing to do with intimidation or feeling like he doesn't need to worry like this guy. Because because I guess the more I've thought about it since then, if if that was the case, that would mean he knows Martinez. You know, that he knows that Martinez knows who he is Yeah. in order for that to be a factor. So I, th- I think the more and more I, I keep going over it, I think that it is more of an indicator, again, in my opinion, that this person is mature and criminally sophisticated, smart enough to not do what you said, which is to run. To run. Richard says, do the boys in their house looking at the gas station to see if their Anna's working have any sort of timestamp that we can use to determine the time they saw the guy come out? I think their only timestamp is the arrival of the police. Because they it does say that they were in the report, they were watching TV, they looked across at about 8.20 p.m. I don't know if they were looking at a clock or anything like that, but I, I assume because they saw that and then... Here comes a police officer across the street. Another squad car pulls in. Right. And we know that that happened at 8.21 p.m. So I think that's probably the only timestamp they really have. So here's where I need to play devil's advocate, I think. I am very suspicious of their account of mm-hmm. this whole thing. Being that they are, you know, I, I think it said over 200 feet away. Right. So you're, you're two-thirds of a football field, if not further, depending on how far that is. Right. It's dark. You know, it's a very nondescript event to look out the window. You have no way right. to put a timestamp on it. And these police, they've already said the police weren't lights and sirens coming in. Well, uh, William said, I, I don't know that Pilo ever really clarified this, but William said that he had not sirens, but lights on, but he shut them off like a block back. So again, you're not yeah. going to see that. Right. So at that point of like having something to put a timestamp on, you don't really know. So these boys are just looking out the window. That doesn't mean they didn't happen to look out the window and see the suspect. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, you know, it, it, your your assessment was like four to five seconds right. to move across this distance. We're assuming they look out a window and in that four to five seconds, they can capture all this detail. I mean, I know they have a ton of detail, but through the dark from that distance to be able to say he had a dark ball cap, he had a jacket and he was wearing blue jeans mm-hmm. and he possibly had something under his arm. I think that's really hard to tell in the dark from that distance. And, and this is what I was talking about earlier is I saw a friend of mine today from less distance in the light and I couldn't tell you what color pants he was wearing. Right. Because it was such a nondescript moment in the day that right. like, I remember seeing him and I do know what time it was because I got in the vehicle and we were leaving. Mm-hmm. But as far as like what he is actually wearing, if you don't, if you don't have a reason to remember See, I saw him from about, because he was at my house. Yeah. Uh, it was my realtor taking the sign down because we closed on our house yesterday. But I was I was uh, coming out from my backyard mm-hmm. when he was out there. So he's probably 120, 150 feet away from me. So and, half the distance. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I think it was 222 feet for them. But what I know is, I know that he was wearing a dark blue polo that was tucked in uh, that maybe he should have untucked. See, but Sorry, I don't Josh. think he was. I think he was wearing a red one. Really? Stand by. I, I do legit. I think he was wearing a red shirt. Let's see. Let's see whose eyewitness account is better. This, we'll but that's what it. I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at is like, you can't. Hang on. I'm going to pause this real quick because I'm curious. I'm going to pause this. I'm going to text him and figure out who's right. And this is a good lesson in uh, eyewitness identification. Yeah. So when he left your house, he was stopping at the corner to get his sign, stopped the car, got out of the car and walked back to me. This is great. Right. Talking to me. I'm going to pause this. 
And I'm saying dark blue polo. I'm saying red. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Okay, so I just sent my realtor a message. We'll move on. I'll tell you if he hits me back. It's going to be a weird message for him to get from me saying, yeah. what color shirt are you wearing right now? <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it's a good lesson in memory. Yeah. Because now that I'm thinking, I still, in my mind, I can picture him wearing jeans and a dark blue polo. And I remember thinking, maybe you should have, rethought tucking that thing in but i also i saw him yesterday yeah at my closing and so now i'm like am i blending those two memories together which is very common so hopefully he hits us and, back and that's what i'm curious as to when they when was this reported when were they interviewed that night were they interviewed that night that night okay. and, the, and the canvassing they went to their house and that's why i mean i don't i i believe their statement i don't believe by the time i got to trial mm -hmm. because you know nine years later the details became much more Detailed, yeah, I should say, you know, and, and I don't believe that. So, but what I believe is it's too much of a coincidence for these two boys when the police knock on their door and they say, "Yeah, actually, we were looking over there about nine, about eight twenty, and we saw a guy walk out, and he was wearing a dark jacket and jeans and a hat, looked like he maybe had something under his jacket, and he walked around the corner at the exact same time." that Martinez said the exact same thing. Yeah. It's, it's too much of a coincidence for them to get those details. Now, they, they did say trench coat, mm -hmm. you know, so there's some details that were wrong. Well, and that's where, I, that's where I'm just trying to put this together in my head because if you're saying, now, I don't know exactly where their house was, but in, in theory of where I believe their house was, because where you said the residential area is compared mm -hmm. to where the factories are, you are now looking past other houses. You already said that the other day that Martinez's house sat closer to the road and the gas station set back off right. the road. Now, I've actually stood... I wonder if I have that picture. I've actually stood in front of their house. Remember the guy that wanted to know what the hell I was doing in his front yard? Yeah. And, and looked at that view and took a picture. And it is a wide open... There's nothing okay. there. It's a wide open, clear view. See, that's what I need to know. Yeah. So if, you, if you're walking out of the gas station towards the street, when you step out, if you look about 45 degrees to your left and straight across... That's the house. It's okay. right there. So it's a it's a clear view. Now there's like some landscaping and stuff at the end of the parking lot. Yeah. But back in ninety one, we see the crime scene photos. There's nothing there. That was just wide open okay. space. So they did have a very clear view. And so it, it seems to me highly unlikely that they would describe damn it. Go ahead. Josh just texted me back. Uh and, and here's our lesson on on memory and eyewitness identification. Josh says he's wearing a red shirt. <laughs> Zach wins. So you win. But I couldn't tell you what color pants he had on. They were blue jeans. <laughs> I, I don't know that they were. See, that's what I'm saying. You could be right on this one. I only say that because I've never seen him anything but blue jeans. Okay. Which is another thing that you may have. Um, you know, when when they're saying that he's wearing jeans, I think your your brain your brain tends to fill in gaps. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what's the most common thing in 1991 for someone to be wearing? Yeah. In a leather coat, are they wearing Dockers or chinos? Yeah. You know, they're probably wearing jeans at that distance. But man, that blows my mind. That that is. That is this that he was wearing a red shirt this morning, and it literally he was. So I'm still picturing him in that shirt, and that has to be the shirt that he was wearing at yesterday's closing. And we've talked about this a lot in season six with memories and how they're malleable. And as Jim Clementi has told us many times, that it's not a a black and white. It's not like a computer disk that stores information in your brain. Memories are stored all over your brain. And in different pieces and part, and, and, your, your, and then your your mind puts them together. In my mind, even though I know he's telling me right now he's wearing a, a red shirt, I'm still picturing him pulling that sign out of my yard, and I'm still seeing him in a blue shirt. Yeah, 
but now I'm also picturing him sitting in the closing table at the title office yesterday wearing a blue shirt. Very interesting. Just trying to explain why I'm wrong and Zach's right, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we can move on, for, unless you got anything else on, was, on, on Luna. That was it. So yeah, I, I mean, it's possible he didn't see it, but again, I find it, I find it it's too much of a coincidence. It, now, if he said, I saw a black male wearing a, a purple shirt go out and head to the right. Yeah. Well, now we got to start thinking, like, who actually saw it? Who had the better vantage point? What happened? But when he's describing essentially the exact same thing that Martinez saw, yeah, I, th- I I'm pretty confident that they did see the person well, leave. Well, and my thought with it was just trying to play devil's advocate, thinking about what you'd actually see looking out across there, mm-hmm. because it is such a a short time period of that four to five seconds to be able to to get all that stuff and from that distance to think that he's carrying something. I don't know. It's it's just I thought that was weird too. And and by trial it becomes he was carrying the register till yeah. under his coat, which obviously you couldn't tell that. Yeah. Tara's got two questions. First, were any cigarette butts observed on the floor during the crime scene investigation, and were they taken into evidence? Not that I've seen. I mean, the the CSI report and the the trial testimony from him, it, it was just like the the autopsy. Like, no one's asking these questions. So, I mean, you could assume. You can't assume. I mean, we know for a fact somebody was smoking in there. Yeah. Bill smoked. And this is 91. You could actually smoke, which just blows my mind. <laughs> a couple things blow my mind when I'm reading all these reports. One, the price of everything. Yeah. And two, the fact that people are smoking inside the building. In a gas station. In a, yeah. But there had to have been cigarette butts in there. Bill smoked. Okay. So there's got to be an ashtray there. The guy was smoking. Unless the guy was so, and, and I don't in any way, shape, or form believe any that, that anyone in 91 was criminally sophisticated enough to know to take their cigarette butts because they didn't really know what DNA was. Yeah. But the fact that that man lit up a cigarette in there, where's the butt? No indication from what I've seen. Now, I have not. We're going to do an episode on forensics when we get that to that place uh, where we'll go through everything, all the reports, everything that was taken from the crime scene. But so far, I haven't seen anything to indicate they collected them. And the crime scene photos, I have two photos from inside the station. And that is, now I got these from uh, a woman named, as I've mentioned before, Tammy Alexander is the one that brought me this case. She's been she's been advocating for this case and, and investigating it with a, a great team of investigators and attorneys for years. They're the ones that did all this legwork. They actually have, um, I believe, a lawsuit right now trying to get the information. So they filed an open records request or a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act, that's dictated by federal law, what has to be turned over, and they keep getting these like incomplete files and oh, overly geez. redacted files. So it's like, here's the crime scene photos, and it's like, this is useless. There's a picture of Bill on the floor, and there's a picture of the register, and that's it yeah. from inside. But now that this is mentioned, I'm gonna try, I, I want to pick back through even closer at that one to see if we can see if there's a, because uh, I would assume if there was a, an ashtray, it would probably been on that counter. Um, but as we know now, if they had collected that, that would be a great source for DNA testing. Yeah. All right. And Tara's next question is, the autopsy shows a one-inch subgaleal hematoma on Bill's head and five one-inch older bruises on the back of his right forearm. Could this be a sign of an earlier beating with some kind of object? For example, someone hitting him with a baton or similar and Bill protecting his head with his arm. It could be a lot of things. It's hard to know. So with the bruises, I mean... Any number of ways you can bang up your forearms. That what what I hadn't actually noticed or I, I missed was the subgaleal hematoma on his head. For for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a bruise on his on his forehead, his frontal lobe, frontal bone, which is in the front of your forehead. It's hard to tell from the picture exactly where it is. After thinking about it, I'm pretty sure a contusion would be a bruise. So a hematoma is it's internal bleeding, right? So what it, you're right, like a, a normal diagnosis from. Like a us, which were EMTs, mm-hmm. it, it was a, a contusion is a bruise. The subgaleal hematoma is technically, yeah, it's blood. It's bleeding between the layers of your skin or between your scalp or your skull and the skin, which would cause some discoloration, which would look like a bruise or or um, uh, a contusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not, there's no detail there, just that it's there. It seems like something that, like that could just come from falling, too. Like right. Once he was shot and falling over. That's my assumption, because he fell face down, is that he probably hit his head while he was still... Because if it, if it was a hematoma, which means his heart was still pumping at that time. He was yeah. still alive. And we know that he was dead within seconds, probably. At least a minute. Before, you know, By then, he was gone. 
uh, that he could have just hit his head on the way down. There's no indication that there's any other injury to connect to that, meaning there's no laceration or evisceration of the, the skin above, outside of it, and there's no skull fracture below it. It's just this hematoma. So it, it is from, like, it probably most likely is from an impact of the head, assuming it's probably part of the murder when he fell. I mean, there's just not enough information there. You know, was it, is it something, could, could that hematoma have been there from, was it old congealed blood, congealed blood from an injury from a week before, or did it happen right then? It's just, it's just very, very vague in all of the medical evidence. All right, and our last question comes from Aaron. You were moving. What about the studio? Oh, right. So this is actually, right now, the very last podcast we're ever going to record in NBI Studios 1.0. It's kind of a, a bittersweet moment for us. You know, this studio was built for, uh, well, we built it, but that was funded by listeners back in 2015 uh, who donated to a GoFundMe to build the studio. Now, a, a portion of that was for the actual building. And then the rest of it was for like the equipment and the, you know, the microphones and the tables and the computers and all the, all the stuff that we have in here. And it was, it was originally designed just for me. I was the only one working. So we've got uh, the table where we record with the four microphones around it. And there's a little coffee station and my desk in a corner where I would do my work when I wasn't recording. Then in 2016, we brought in Mike. And so Mike has been working for the last three years. At one of the sta- one of the seats at the recording table in this tiny little cramped space. Yeah, it's been a good run. Yeah, I mean it really has been. But Mike and I work like seriously four feet away from each other, and I don't think I could do that with anybody but Mike. Uh, we, we've only ever had like one one incident that we don't discuss ever. We fight all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but so what, what's happened? I, I'm pretty sure I've explained this, but if I haven't, um, Becky and I have purchased a new house. We're moving out to the country. And we, so it's been kind of a, a process of us selling this house and closing on the new one. And we just yesterday, which will be actually Monday, because you're hearing this Friday, closed on both houses. And Thursday we are moving out. And then this weekend we're moving into the new place. So and when we get to the new place, hopefully the sound and everything will be good. Cause right at the beginning, when we get there, we're going to be set up in a garage to record while we're building the new studio. So. Um, there's a, I have have an extra building that's pretty decent size that we're going to construct into a separate office space, a separate little break room area and a separate recording booth for, um, us. And then, you know, Zach and, uh, Stacy and Angie with the Hustle and Heels podcast, all the NBI shows to have the space where they can record and we can still be out in the other office working. So it's going to be super nice. We're actually going to have a bathroom. We hope once we uh, do some construction out there, but in the meantime, when we get to the new place, we're going to uh, set up in the front part of that garage to keep working so we can keep the episodes coming. And then in the evenings, we're going to be working on the the construction in the back to get our, our whole new NBI Studios 2.0 built. Um, and Shane Yoder, actually, our, our sound guy, our music man from Nashville, is who also has a NBI show, uh, The Root Note, is actually traveling up here from Nashville the following next weekend to help us with that construction. So. Uh, it's going to be a big team effort. We're going to make Zach come down and help out too. I will. Yep. And uh, so we will be up and running. There won't be any gap. But if next week the sound is a little different or it just sounds like we're half-assing our job, it's probably because we are, because we're trying to get a lot of stuff done all at once. But we're going to keep plugging along with the investigation. And real quick, before we end this one, our final ending of a, it's kind of sad, the kind of final ending of a podcast in the studio. Not sad at all. Not at all. We're excited for the new movie. We really new, are. Yeah. Um, new Horizons, Bob. Uh, but one thing that I forgot to mention last week is, and so it's now it's a couple of weeks back, but um, I was actually a guest on Zach's podcast, Made Us, two weeks ago, episode number... 35. 35. So if, Let if, me check that. Yeah, if, if any of you are really interested in kind of the behind-the-scenes uh, experience of creating the TV show for Oxygen, the filming and all that, uh, Zach was kind enough to have me on Made Us a couple weeks ago and talk about all those experiences in that filming and production process. Yeah, that's episode 35 of Made Us. Great. And with that, we are going to close up shop. And for the very last time from NBI Studios 2.1, I'm Bob. I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. 
And thank you guys for listening, and make sure you check out Jim Clementi on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.